Turn with me to 2 Corinthians 5, 16 through 21. From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All of this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, before uh, you know, I pastored Christ's covenant, I, I had the chance to be a part of church revitalization efforts. Uh, and th- I pastored three churches before coming here, and those were very different churches. And um, they all were in some degree in need of revitalization, kind of new vision, new life. And that was an amazing experience. It's a hard work, but it's a very rewarding work, and it's a very good work to be a part of. Um, and because I've been able to be a part of that kind of thing, I've had the opportunity to coach some other guys that are doing it now and saying, hey, learn from the big mistakes that, that I've made. And, and, and whenever I do that, um, I, I've kind of come up with this analogy. Um, in, in order to lead an organization, especially an existing organization, you, you have to understand what that organization is, what makes it it. Uh, and so I've given this analogy of architecture and, and a house. And when we lived in Birmingham, our house was this kind of English cottage-style house, this kind of cottagey kind of house. And, of course, we you know, bought furniture and outfitted our house to kind of fit that style of a house. Well, of course, in Atlanta, we bought a mid-century modern house. Now, we didn't buy that house because mid-century modern was like our style. We didn't know that it was cool. Apparently is cool, but we didn't realize that. It was just the only house we could afford um, but none of our stuff worked in that house. I mean, we, we, we had all this like cottagey stuff. Uh, in, in Covington, we kind of lived in more of like a similar kind of like a farmhousey cottage kind of thing. So we didn't have any like modern stuff. And so we had all this like cottagey stuff in this mid-century modern house. And we just, we kind of didn't know how to live in that house. It was our house and we were proud of it and we loved it. But we, we've had to over the years kind of make that house our own. Now it is our own and, and we love, I mean, I love my house. We, we're so proud of it. It's, it's our home. It, it feels like our home. But the, but the point I'm trying to make here is we had to figure out what is this house before we could really live in it, before we could really understand what it meant to make this house our home, at least aesthetically. And I think that's true of any kind of organization. Every organization has some sort of an identity. It, it, it is something. And if you ever, if the Lord ever gives you a leadership opportunity in organization, that's a good thing to remember. That, okay, this is something. What makes it it? And in these few weeks that we're in right now, you know, even though many of us have been a part of building Christ's covenant, I, I think it's important for us to stop and remember, wait a second. What makes it it? What is it? Why has the Lord done this work here? What, what is foundationally 
true of us, of this church. And, and so what we've been doing is to, to take a look at one of these passages, and we're looking at it in three different ways, that has been so foundational. And, and we've been looking at it through the lens, or we are looking at it through the lens of our three core convictions, a gospel lens we looked at last week, a kingdom lens that we're going to look at today, and next week we're going to be looking at this passage through a missional lens. Of course, last week we looked at this through a gospel lens, and one of the key ideas, this is such a foundational idea, that we regard, we don't regard the world, we don't regard ourselves, we don't regard others according to the flesh. We realize what is ultimate in Christ, what is ultimate is our spiritual life. And of course, when we, when we start to develop a spiritual life, as we looked at last week, and I'm not going to review the whole sermon, but I think this is an important thing to remember. When we start to develop a spiritual life, we realize how much we are in need of reconciliation, how broken our hearts really are, how, as we, we quoted Jonathan Edwards last week, we have this aversion to God, this opposition to God naturally, which has left us full of selfishness and pride and greed and unbelief. When we start to develop a spiritual life, we realize how far we are from the Lord and how much we need for God to save us, to reconcile us. And, and the, the amazing message of the gospel is that he has, that he sent us this great reconciler, Ryler. He, he sent his son to people who had an aversion to him. I mean, it's an amazing thing to believe, to die for us, to give of himself for us, to, to reconcile sinners like us back to himself. And if you've experienced that, if you've experienced that reconciliation, you know, even if you haven't, if you've, if you've never really felt reconciled to God, maybe you have been reconciled to someone else. And it's the best feeling, isn't it? The relationship's been broken and now the relationship is healed. Somebody you love, somebody that's important to you. Well, that's exactly the, the language that the Bible gives us to talk about what's happened with us and God, that there was a broken relationship that's now been healed, that's now made whole. And, and, and there, there is no greater sense of love and depth than that. I love the way John describes it in 1 John. See the love that the Father has lavished on us, that we would be called, we who are enemies of God, would now be called the children, the beloved children of God. If you've been reconciled to God, if you've experienced that, that changes you. It informs how you understand yourself, and it actually informs every other relationship that you have. And that's really what I want to talk about today. This kingdom idea, we've been called to be this kingdom family as followers of Jesus. God's given us the ministry of reconciliation. There's a, there's a missional side to this that we're going to look at next week. But in order for us to live out that mission, and as a result of being reconciled to God, there is this life that we now have together and so I want to look at this passage through a kingdom lens. The gospel calls us to be a kingdom people, and there's three things that I think it's important for us to think about. The gospel calls us, as a kingdom people, to view one another differently, to be reconciled to one another fully, and to live among one another, or live among others, rather, missionally. If we've really been reconciled to God, we view ourselves, and of course, we view others differently. Again, we've been talking about this verse a lot, but it's so important to understand the whole of the Christian life. We regard no one according to the flesh. We regard no one according to the flesh. And this is very hard. I'm going to keep saying this because this is so hard for you. It's so for me. Because the city of Atlanta teaches us to regard everyone according to the flesh. The whole world teaches us, regard people according to the flesh. 
Their, their identity is in their wealth, in their status, in their race, in their education level, who their family members are. This is how the world teaches us to regard one another. The gospel calls us away from that. We regard no one according to the flesh. We regard, I mean, I want you to hear this, that the gospel calls us to regard people fundamentally and primarily by the love that Jesus has for them. That's what the gospel calls you to, that, that other people are to you as they are to Jesus. The, the, the love that Jesus has for them, that, that's how you're to regard one another, to, to love people like Jesus loves them, to have the same kind of compassion and mercy toward others that Jesus had toward, has toward them. That's the essence of Christian community. We didn't read it, but, but skip up real quick to verse 14. I think it's important. This is what I'm trying to say here. The love of Christ controls us. If this reconciling work has happened, if you've, if you've experienced this lavish love of God, then, then that love is so strong that it controls us. Because we've concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore we've all died, right? This is why we don't regard one another according to the flesh. Because if you're really in Christ, you're like, I died. <laughs> I'm dead. I'm dead. My, my flesh, it, it, it is it has won me nothing. It has regarded me nothing. So I, I have died with Christ. Therefore, all have died. And then verse 15, and he died for all that those who live might no longer live for themselves, right? This is the natural man, that we, that we live for the purpose of ourselves. We live to comfort ourselves. We live to make ourselves successful. We live to make a name for ourselves. But, but in Christ, we now no longer live for ourselves, but for him, who for their sake, in this case, for our sake, died and was raised. In Christ, we no longer live for ourselves. We live for him. We live for his sake. In Christ, we regard people primarily by the way that Christ regards them, by the love that Christ has for them. This is so important. Now, practically, you know, what does this mean? You know, how do you how do we do this? Well, a couple ideas. We should be moving as we grow in Christ, as we grow in spiritual maturity, away from comparison and toward covenant. Away from comparison and toward covenant. The natural world only lives by comparison, right? The natural world compares. This person's important, right? They have more money. They have more influence. They, you know, have these relationships. They are worth my time, Right? Uh, they are better than this person. And, and, and especially, I want you to hear this, for a bunch of go-getters like you, you know, people that live in Atlanta, you're go-getters, you have to hustle, you have to work hard. You know, you come to a place like Atlanta because there's so much opportunity here. Maybe you were born in Atlanta, but you're just kind of, this has just been built into you. For, for a bunch of go-getters like you, moving away from comparison is incredibly hard, <laughs> It's incredibly unnatural. The whole world says, no, no, this person's valuable. This person's less valuable. You know, Atlanta teaches you value the important people and be nice enough to the less important people to not appear like you're a jerk. But the Christian life says, regard one another not as the world, right? Not by comparison. Re regard one another as Christ regards them. Regard one another not by comparison, but by covenant, in, in the family that we've been called to in Jesus. 
So what marks your relationships? I mean, that's a great question to ask. Like what marks the people that you're pursuing right now? The relationships that you think about right now? Is it, is it that that person has something to offer to you? Is it, man, this person could really help me out here? Or, or are you giving yourself to the people that Jesus really loves? And let me just tell you, <laughs> Jesus really identifies with the poor. Jesus really identifies with the needy. Jesus really identifies with the broken. Jesus really identifies with the embarrassed. Jesus says in Matthew 25, it's when you give yourself away, when you pursue the least of these, that's actually when you're closest to me. That's that's when you're serving me. That's when you're identifying with me. Keith and Kristen Getty, a few years ago, rewrote the old hymn, Beneath the Cross of Jesus. And there's, there's this one line in there you know, I, I, we don't really sing this song here, and, and maybe we don't like this song, and that's okay, but, but I love this one line, and so I'm going to say this line. I love this line. It's, so, it's been so helpful for me. Beneath the cross of Jesus, as a person in Christ, as a person who realized my worth, my value is in Jesus and his cross, his family is my own. And I love this line. Once strangers chasing selfish dreams, right? Isn't that who we are before Christ? We're just strangers. We don't know each other. We don't care about each other. We're just going after our dreams. We're living for ourselves. Once strangers chasing selfish dreams, now in Jesus, one through grace alone. And I love this line. How could I now dishonor? (laughs) How could I dishonor the ones that you have loved, Jesus? Beneath the cross of Jesus, see the children called by God. See your family. I think of Jesus' words, you know, behold your brother, behold your mother, see your family, see the ones that are following Jesus together. The gospel calls us away from comparison toward covenant. It also calls us away from comfort toward all of Christ's family. Now, I'm not saying here that it's wrong to have Christian relationships with people that you have other things in common with, right? That's, that's good. You know, that's, you know if, if you're saying, oh, I, you know, we, we both like sports or we both like arts or, you know, or we're both kind of the same age, there's nothing wrong with having Christian relationships with people that you have similar interest with, of course. And I think there's actually a good to that. That, that can be incredibly encouraging spiritually. However, I do believe that the gospel calls us in a continual direction away from just those that we are comfortable with toward all of Christ's family, (laughs) toward those in Christ that are different from us. Multiracial relationships can be hard, right? There's different cultural background. There's different understandings of things a lot of time. There's history there. I had somebody come up to me a few weeks ago and says, you know, why and they weren't just talking about our church, but they were talking about our church. Why is our church not more diverse? And I said, well, gosh, where do you want to start, right? You know, there's layers upon layers upon layers of the sin of man involved in the answer to that question. It goes all the way back to Cain and Abel to some degree. But if anyone is in Christ, right, he is a new creation. In Christ, we don't regard one another primarily according to the flesh. We, we regard one another by the spirit of God at work in us, by the spirit of Christ. And, and, and in that, those, those, relational, those racial barriers and all barriers, those economic barriers, those, those different barriers begin to break down. 
those age barriers begin to break down. You know, multi-aged relationships, those can be hard too, right? Different generations approach the world in different ways. But the mature in Jesus are pursuing relationships with people older or younger than themselves. I wanna give a word to the older and a word to the younger. To the younger, you know, this church is full of awesome young people that know God, that know God's word, that are zealous for the things of the Lord. And, and I think that that is awesome. One warning I would give you, and it's because I, <laughs> I know this person, when you're young and energetic and you know God's word deeply, it can lead to a great amount of spiritual pride. And one thing that will keep you safe from that, one thing that will keep that from taking over your life and, and being the tone of your life is relationships with older brothers and sisters. You need some strong older brothers and sisters that can kind of knock that out of you. Pursue that. You should pursue that. You should desire that. You should desire that kind of wisdom. And a word to the older. You know, I want to say those to you, and when I say older, you know, gosh, older at our church, I mean, it's like me and up, right? I'm 40, right? So if you're my age or older, this is a word to us. You know, I hear uh, a lot of older Christians. And again, you know, it's, you know those commercials about like, we can't keep you from becoming your parents. Like the, the older I get, the more I'm like, oh man, I, I am so sounding like my dad or my mom here. And I guess that's just true of everybody, right? But a word to the older you know, I hear a lot of older men and women kind of concerned about culture, concerned about the current moment. Yet, a lot of the older men and women that I hear these kinds of things from rarely hang out with people that aren't their own age. They rarely hang out with younger people. They're rarely leaning into the next generation. And I just wanna say this to you, you know, you've never been wiser than you are right now. You've likely never been richer than you are right now. You've probably, you know, especially for those of you that are moving into empty nester stage, you've probably never had more time on your hands than you do right now. And yet for some of you, you've never been less engaged in disciple making than you are right now. The Lord has entrusted you all this wisdom, all this time, all of this biblical knowledge, all of this experience. And I just wanna to say to you, that is a stewardship. That's a stewardship. Don't be the wicked and lazy servant that just buries it. Be the faithful servant. Leverage your whole life for the Lord. Find some younger brothers and sisters to invest in, to pour your life into. In the gospel, we regard no one according to the flesh, and that changes the way that we view others. It pushes us away from comparison toward covenant, and it pushes us away from comfort toward all of Christ's family. But the second thing that that as we think about looking at this through a kingdom lens, the second thing that this work of reconciliation calls us to is to be reconciled to one another fully. To be reconciled to one another fully. You know, I've been reading Tim Keller's new book on forgiveness, and it, it, it's, it's interesting. It, it comes at a time when the world is kind of confused on forgiveness. Um, and I'll just say that. I mean, you're, you're going to see more and more confusion about a lot of things that we kind of feel that are built into our culture as the, as the world kind of moves further and further away from a Christian ethic of things. Christian ethics get more and more confusing. 
And of course, he talks about the complexity of forgiveness in the book. On the one side, you kind of have cheap grace forgiveness, right? Which means don't be bothered by things. Don't hold a grudge. Just forgive. You know, it's not a big deal. It's not a big deal. Just move past it. That'll help you in a psychological sense. Just move past it. But then there's the other side, and this is what we're kind of seeing, is just like, don't forgive, right? Justice says you can't forgive. You, you, you gotta hold this against them. You, you, they need to suffer for this, for what they did wrong. But, but a Christian understanding of forgiveness is so different from either of these extremes, right? It's so different from the justice never forgive extreme, and it's so different from the cheap grace extreme. Christian forgiveness, the gospel doesn't say it's no big deal. <laughs> In fact, it, it says the opposite. Far from having too low of a view of the consequences of sin, the Bible says the consequences of sin, of any sin, is death. It's separation from God. It's the worst consequence. In fact, I don't know anybody here that would, I don't know what sin has been sinned against you, but I don't know many people that would wish the wrath of God on someone that has sinned against them. The consequences of sin in God's economy are great. Christians never say this is no big deal. No, it is a big deal. It's a big deal to God. And of course, when our society is best, we, we do have a society that reflects God's justice, that reflects God or, God's order. We, we need a justice system. We need some sort of system that punishes the wrongdoer, that, that, that holds up right order. But at the same time, Christians can forgive because we have a forgiving God. And what God has done to forgive us is the most extreme thing. He's taken on the price of our sin. It's not like Jesus on the cross is saying, your sin is no big deal. <laughs> no, Jesus on the cross is saying, your sin is the biggest deal. It's, it's the wrath of God. It's, it's creating this most horrible thing that has ever happened. But God, because of his love, is absorbing the price of our sin himself. Verse 19, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespass against them. Okay, well then who is the trespass counted toward? The answer is God himself and Jesus. God is taking on the price of our sin. God is counting the trespass against himself in Christ. For our sake, he made him, Jesus, who knew no sin, to be sin and take on the price of our trespass so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. God himself absorbed the price of our sins so that he could forgive us. And that's really what forgiveness really is. It's paying a debt. It's absorbing a debt. A wrong has been done. And, 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 and rather than holding it forever against the person, we, we absorb the cost. Again, not, there's, it's not that there's not consequences. There oftentimes are consequences. Again, we want to live in a fair and just society but, but Christians are called to be reconciled to one another, to pursue reconciliation with one another. There could be personal forgiveness, and as the other person repents, there can be true restoration in the relationship. Now, that's not always the case. I mean, one of the most freeing verses in the Bible to me, in Romans 12, it says, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. You know, there have been times in my life where I've pursued and pursued and pursued reconciliation, and the other person just wouldn't do it. I can forgive them, I can take the weight of whatever offense that was, but I can't be restored. I can't be reconciled to them unless there's repentance in, from them. But my point is to say, if we have been reconciled to God, 
And if God has given us now the ministry of reconciliation, is to call other people into reconciliation with God, then we have to be reconciled to one another. We have to love one another. If our work of reconciliation is going to ever have any credibility to the watching world, and more importantly, if we're going to please God, we have to be reconciled to one another fully. And here's the deal. We're going to hurt people. <laughs> we're going to hurt one another. That's the nature of living in a fallen world. But part of what it means to be reconciled to God is to pursue reconciliation with one another. You have to forgive one another. You have to pursue reconciliation. And Jesus said in his Sermon on the Mount, if you're offering an al- a gift on the altar to God, and remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift and go. First be reconciled to your brother, then offer your gift. We're going to hurt one another. We're going to have disagreements, right? We're going to disagree. You know, there are people here that vote for Democratic candidates. There are people here that vote for Republican candidates. There are people here that have never been vaccinated. There are people that have been vaccinated many times. And you know what? The world would want to take those things and use them to rip the body of Jesus apart. To say, that person's your bitter enemy, that, that, that you should totally discount that person. That person's a fool. That person's an idiot. The gospel calls us to look at one another with love as brothers, fundamentally united in the gospel. Now, I'm not saying that we never talk about these things. You know, don't be confused to say, just because we're fundamentally to look at one another as brothers and sisters doesn't mean that we can't talk about why we believe this politically or that politically or even try to persuade someone to your positions of, of course, we, we should be doing that. We should, that's part of our thinking together as a church family. But, but we regard no one according to the flesh or to party or to any other degree of separation. Fundamentally, those things aren't who we are. Not worldly or fleshy things. We're spiritual beings, brothers and sisters in Christ. And so, as brothers and sisters in Christ, we seek to love and understand one another and be restored to one another. And you know what will kill this at Christ's covenant? Pride. Pride is thinking too much of yourself and too little of God and others. And I want you to hear this. Pride is anti-gospel. The gospel calls us. If you're in Christ, the gospel calls you to a cross. Your identity is a cross. I just want you to hear that. If you're a Christian, your identity is a cross. And there's nothing like the cross The cross will simultaneously give you great humility and great encouragement. There's nothing else like this. The cross will give you great humility. I mean, the cross says to you, your sin was so bad that it took God himself dying to save you. What else could humble you like that? But the cross is simultaneously encouraging because it says God did save you. God does love you enough to save you. God was was willing to be put out God was willing to be forsaken. God was willing to be crushed because of you. And that's deeply encouraging. Again, the Getty song, beneath the cross of Jesus, as people who identify with the cross of Jesus, his family is my own. Once strangers, chasing selfish dreams and identities and ideologies, but now we're one through grace alone. How could I now dishonor the ones that you have loved? Beneath the cross of Jesus, See the children called by God. The final call of this, this idea of what does reconciliation call us to in terms of living to one another? And Jackson's gonna talk more about this next week. I even tempted to leave this point off. 
Jackson Randall's preaching next week, but I just, I wanted my shake at it, so sorry, Jackson. Um, but we're called to live in the world missionally. This ministry of reconciliation, look at 14 and 15 again. It says, the love of Christ controls us because we've concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all that those who live may no longer live for themselves, but for him. We live for him who for their sake was died and was raised. The gospel calls us to both be distinct from the world, to be different from the world. We're followers of Christ. We're followers of a different ethic. We're followers of a different kingdom. We're not followers of the age, right? So we're, we're distinct from the world. We're not living for ourselves, right, but for Jesus. We're distinct from the age, but we have been given this ministry of reconciliation to the age. We're, we're called to the world. We're distinct from the world. We're called to the world. I mean, verse 19 is a great verse to meditate on. In Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself. Okay, so God is calling people out of the world to himself to be distinct from the world, not counting their trespass against them, right? So we have been called to God to be different from the world, but God has entrusted to us the ministry of reconciliation. So in that one verse, you see this, right? You're, you're called away from the world to God. God's calling you to himself, but he's also calling you, he's also giving you the ministry of reconciliation. He's calling you to the lost, the dying world. This necessarily calls us to live in the world missionally, to be a distinctively present person, to be in the world, but to be distinct from the world. And even though this is the call of God, Christians tend to, and, and many of you have heard me talk about this before, but it's, it's, it's a burden of mine. Christians tend to move in one of two directions. We tend to either assimilate to the world, right, just become like the world, or to totally separate from the world into these little Christian enclaves. And there's a reason that we do one of those two things, because being distinctively present is hard. Being distinctively present is costly. Being distinctively present will make you uncomfortable. And so because we love comfort, because we love ourselves, we will move toward assimilation. Let's just be like the world, it's more comfortable. Or let's just be like everybody that's like us. Let's, let's kind of form these little Christian enclaves so that we don't have to be challenged. Our worldview never has to be challenged. We don't even have to be that smart. We don't have to know the Bible that well because we don't have to have an answer for it. Even though God has called us to be distinctively present, he's called us to himself and he's given us the ministry of reconciliation, we tend to do the opposite. We either assimilate or we separate. But the church, Christianity has been its best when it hasn't done one of those two. Christianity is at its best when it's been distinctively present. But it's costly. It's been well documented that, you know, when you think about Christianity, I mean, just historically, I'm just talking not spiritually here, but just as a historian, how this thing happened, this, this movement of Christ followers that was born into a world that hated it. I mean, historians have looked at this and said, how did this happen? How did the Roman world embrace Christianity? And, 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 and historians over and over uh, again, uh, Kenneth Latourette, Rodney Stark, I mean, many historians have, have documented the two movements that really had the, the greatest effect it was the time during the plague of Cyprian and the time during the Antonine plague, two Roman plagues 
And these plagues were most intense in the Roman cities. And these were horrible plagues. I mean, these were plagues where a quarter of the population was dying. And it was especially intense in the cities. And so what people were doing is they were getting out of the cities. <laughs> let's get away. Let's spread out. Let's get away from the crowds, right? We can all relate to that, right? We've kind of gone through something like this. <laughs> the crowds where you get COVID, right? Get away, you know, spread out. Stay at home. That's what people were doing. They were following that impulse. So people got out of the cities. They got away from where you might catch the plague and die. But in doing so, they left behind their friends, in doing so, in many cases, they left behind their family. I mean, there's, there's a lot of documented cases of people just leaving their parents there in the city to die. But the Christians didn't do that. Now, what's so interesting about the timing of this is that both of these plagues came on the heels of the Decian and the Diocletian persecution. So two of the greatest eras of Christian persecution immediately preceded these plagues. And, and rather than hating the world because the world had been so cruel to them, Christians stayed in these cities and not, not only ministered to their own, but they ministered to the people, the Romans, the people that hated them. They, they cared for them. They ministered to them. And, and it's not like, these stories aren't like, and God miraculously saved the lives of all the Christians. No, a lot of them died. But when the Romans saw that, Here's what it was. When the Romans saw that the Christians actually didn't regard their lives according to the flesh, the Romans saw they actually regarded their lives according to the spirit, that, that the spiritual realities of their lives were the most important things to them. It totally changed the world. It totally changed the Roman world. They knew who they were in Christ. They understood that fundamentally they were spiritual beings and they, they lived in the world missionally. Three practical things on this. And these are just things to consider. Number one, consider your neighborhood. How are you living in your neighborhood in a distinctively present way? Do you serve your neighbors? I mean, are you just, are you just living for yourself in your neighborhood or are you living for your neighborhood? Are you present there? Are you praying for your neighbors? I mean, many of you know that, you know, our street, <laughs> we have many wonderful neighbors, but many of our neighbors have been kind of hostile to us and literally very frustrated with us for doing things like hosting Bible studies and things like that. And that's been awesome. It's been awesome for me as a parent, at least, and for me as a Christian, like, this idea that I'm an ambassador is, like, very real to me. Like, I'm the only Christian that, that most of my neighbors really know. Like, I'm representing Jesus to most of my neighbors. And how I interact with them and how I represent my Lord, I mean, that matters for, like, eternity for them. And it's really good for my kids, too. I, I want them to realize, like, oh, I'm called to be an ambassador, for Christ, that's, that's dramatically informed how we've tried to live in our neighborhood. Number two, consider your school or school choice. Now, again, I've gotten in trouble for this. And I want to very clearly say I believe in and support and love private Christian school education. I, in fact, I believe that we need private 
in school institutions. I'm, I'm, I'm personally very involved with higher ed and Christian learning. I'm going to ETS this week, so I am, I'm, I'm of you, okay, in the private school world, private Christian school world. But I, I would like to just ask, you know, I don't believe that every Christian is called to that. I just don't believe that every Christian is called to that. And, and the ask that I would make for those of your parents or for those of you who are going to be a parent someday is, am I making this decision of where am I go, my kids go to school because of calling, because of mission, or is it just because it's what's comfortable and safe? You know, I, I love that my kids are in the public school because of what I just said about my neighborhood. They, they, know, they, they, they know that they're representing Jesus to the kids in their school. That's awesome. We, part of the decision that we've made to have our kids in public school is a discipleship decision, right? It's not just money for us. It's, it's a discipleship decision. We're saying this, this is part of our discipleship. You know, they already, live, they already live in the pastor's home, right? They're gonna be around church a lot. I want them to realize, like, the world is lost, and God has entrusted to them a ministry of reconciliation. And that's really helped me in my discipleship of them. To say, okay, how do we talk to our friends about this? What do you believe about that? This amb- the ambassador language of 2 Corinthians 5 is not strange to them. It's very real to them. And last, consider your work calling. I know that the workplace in Atlanta. I mean, I know these companies. I get it. I know it. it. They're very secular. They're deeply secular. They hold secular values. But you can't all work for Chick-fil-A, right? <laughs> and maybe the Lord has you in a deeply secular place for a reason, to be a gospel light, now, this is a complex thing, and this is one of the reasons we have the Center for Faith and Work or the, the Advisor for Faith and Work, and it's something we want to continue to do work on. But very simply, I'll give you the line, okay? Because people say, well, can I do this at work? Or what if my work's doing this? What should I do? Here's the line. It's, it's, it's the line of affirmations and denials, right? You can't affirm something that you don't believe, and you can't deny something that you do believe, right? So you want to say, what's the line at work? You, you can't affirm something that is not pleasing to our Lord, say, I believe this, or I am of this, and you can't deny something that you do believe, right? That's, that's the, the line. But, but just because your company celebrates secular things or s- sinful things, just because there's some cultural things in your company that are not pleasing to the Lord, that, that doesn't mean that you have to leave. You know, Christians can serve in the Roman army, but they can't say Caesar is Lord, right? So you can be attached to something that is secular, not spiritual, not religious, doesn't have Christian values necessarily, but you can't affirm something. The line is affirmations and denials. So I, I want you to consider that. You know, the Lord may have you in a place. Now, and here's what that means if you're called there. And you can't make those affirmations and denials. It means for some of you that you're not going to become vice president. It means for some of you that you're not going to get that promotion. But the Lord may still have you there. This is what I'm trying to say. And if you regard your life according to the flesh, you'll be like, well, I got to go to the place where I can make more money. But if you really believe that the Lord has reconciled you to himself and given you the ministry of reconciliation, you might be saying, you know, actually, I think God has actually called me here. 
and I'm always gonna be mid-level management because they don't trust me because I'm a crazy Christian. But in eternity, I'll just go ahead and tell you, the dividends will be better to live out the calling of God on your life courageously with faith. It may mean you lose your job. We have been given the ministry of reconciliation. That means we're, we're called to, to live missionally in our schools, in our homes, in our neighborhoods, in our workplaces, to be distinct from the world but present in the world. And in a secular world, that will come, whether it's your neighborhood or your school or your workplace, that will come with a cost. I hear people say all the time, you know, Christianity is being threatened. Christianity is being threatened. I just want to say, Christianity is not being threatened. Christianity cannot be threatened. The gates of hell will not prevail against Christianity. The only thing that's being threatened is comfortable Christianity. Now, comfortable Christianity is being threatened, but Christianity is not being threatened. The lordship of Jesus is not you know, up in the air right now, what's gonna happen? Is Jesus gonna really reign? No, Jesus is going to reign. He's Lord. He has the name that is above all names. And because of that, and because we know him, we don't regard our lives according to the flesh. And Christians are willing to suffer, to, to struggle, to make ourselves uncomfortable because that's, that's what our Lord has done. He was rich and he became poor so that in him we may become rich. He who knew no sin became our sin and suffered for us so that we may become the righteousness of God. He who was only accepted, totally accepted, totally loved, was forsaken and stricken by God so that we may be accepted. And if we know him, we will do the same. Let's pray. Father, I pray that your reconciling work um, that draws us to you will have the right result of drawing us rightly to one another and to those that don't know you. I pray that, that this result of the gospel, this reconciling result of the gospel would be true of us and that this gospel truth would do its work in our hearts now. That we would lean into this ministry of reconciliation that you have called us to, that we would be fully reconciled to one another and that we, as we are reconciled to you and that we would be called to this reconciling ministry to a lost and needy world. And so Lord, do this in our church, do this in our lives. Increase our faith for this, Lord, we pray in Jesus' name.